Welcome, friends. It's the third Monday of the month, and of course, that means it's time for another edition of Film Literature and the New World Order. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and as we announced at the end of last month's edition of this series, this month we are examining The Prestige, which was a 1995 novel by Christopher Priest, adapted for the, uh, for the screen by Christopher Nolan in 2006 in a screenplay that he co-wrote with his brother, as he does, I believe, all his screenplays. And to join us to dissect this particular piece of uh, cinema and or literature, depending on which of the <laughs> which of these two uh, versions of the story we're going to be talking about today, we're joined by Jay, uh, uh, Jay Dyer of jaysanalysis.com. Jay, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Like I said, it's a pleasure and an honor to be with you, James, and I look forward to this discussion. Well, I've been looking forward to it for some time because this is such an uh, such an interesting movie from a lot of different perspectives, and I'm sure anyone who is familiar with the uh, the the sort of online discussion that's come up around this film will see that there's a lot of discussion trying to look for the the philosophical meanings of the film and the, even the the sort of the the straightforward plot what is the plot what does the ending actually reveal there's a lot of debate along those lines that go around online but people have probably not seen a take much like the one that you have at jaysanalysis.com where you posted the prestige 2006 a film about revelation of the method why don't you tell us a little bit about this article that you wrote and uh, and why you were compelled to examine this film in particular? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, I felt like it was a film that was kind of forgotten. I mean, it wasn't a flop or anything like that. It did well in the box office. It got good critical reviews. But it's a film that doesn't ring a bell with a lot of people, especially in, say, the younger millennial crowd. It came out in 2006, and so we're you know almost nine years, ten years out, out from this film being in theaters. And I reviewed it a year ago, and I thought, this is just packed with all kinds of insights, whether it p- pertains to things like philosophy, whether it pertains to metaphysics, whether, it, whether it's geopolitics, espionage, and statecraft, or whether it's the science of illusion and, and theater, they're all kind of wrapped up in this, as well as, I believe, even deeper level esoteric kind of uh, twi- what, we, what I call twilight language, what others call twilight language. So we can get into that a little bit later. But I felt it was a film that deserved an analysis and one that treated it with the depth that was proper to it. So that's what I did in my piece. That's right. I mean, you can say a lot of things about this movie, but you cannot say that it is not uh, deep. I mean, it certainly is deep. It has a lot of profound points, and I think you tease a lot of them out in this article. But I think we should probably start with the title of the article. I assume that a lot of the listeners in the Corbett Report crowd will have heard of this idea of the revelation of the method before, but perhaps you can tell us what that uh, term actually means. Sure. Revelation of the Method, as I understand it, it has its origins in Eastern, Far Eastern thought. So there's Sandhabayasa, which is this concept of things being written in a kind of script that's not just a script in terms of textual scripts, but also the notion of reality and events being, in a way, scripted. That doesn't necessarily mean that every single event is scripted by some oligarch or cause to happen, but rather that perhaps there are unseen forces, spiritual realms, whatever, at least that's the idea in the Far Eastern perspective, that in some way influence and affect our level of reality. So I don't want to go too far into Far Eastern thought on all that, but that is the origin of this notion of, quote, twilight language. And the reason that twilight language relates to 
revelation of the method is that a lot of this is about the psyche. So I have a lot of pieces where I delve into psychology and the psyche. And when we think about what film does is that it presents to us a story, a narrative that enters our minds and our psyche processes these, these stories, these narratives. And we're seeing it in a visual, iconic, iconographic form. And so it's unique. Film is unique in that it combines so many different mediums, both the visual and the auditory, as well as the ability to edit and play with time, which you don't see in other forms of art such as opera or theater. I mean, you, you could have a story told out of time, but you don't have the same ability to splice up time like you do with film editing. So Revelation of the Method, though, I believe is really a – it operates on – for multiple intentions, I guess. On one level, you can tell a story where you have foreshadowing. That's perhaps a simple version of this where one character experiences something that foreshadows events that are going to happen later in the story or narrative. Revelation of the Method, though, can also be used in a weaponized or psychological warfare sense where maybe, for example, gaslighting, where probably most of us are familiar with that term. And what we might do in gaslighting from a PSYOPs perspective is either tell the enemy what we're going to do ahead of time or tell something falsely that we're going to do ahead of time to get them off the trail. And we're actually going to see examples of both of those in this film. So the prestige then is structured around a three-fold, three-stage process that we'll get into. But Suffice to say that Revelation of the Method, I believe, is a real thing, and it really just boils down to the psychology of how you um, how you tell your opponent ahead of time what you're going to do to either misdirect them or to condition them to what's coming down the pike. That's right, and obviously misdirection is such a key part of the film, not only in the sort of ostensible surface level of the the plot and these these rival magicians, but I think also the the film itself is a is a type of misdirection, which it Absolutely. it really tells us ahead of time this is basically a trick. Are you you know are you are you watching carefully? This is this is a trick, and uh, the question really is, well, what is the trick, and what well, how do we unlock this mystery and I think one of the trickiest aspects of this is that it's a film that ostensibly contains its own uh, key for dis- uh, deciphering the cipher, which is Tesla. It's actually the 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 five letter word that's used as the key to decode the the diary um, that uh, that Angier gets from uh, his his rival. But that's interesting because it seems to be that that was a false trail given by Borden exactly. to try to throw him off the trail, and yet it ultimately ends up being a true trail, a trail that he uses to actually discover something new. It's a very, very labyrinthine process for arriving at, uh, at the meaning. So let's, let's talk a little bit about Tesla and what this has to do with the, the sort of heart of the movie. That's a great point. Yeah, the cipher in the film actually is the mis- misdirection, at least for the Angier and his character in terms of trying to seek out what uh, his uh, nemeses, his rivals tricks are. And so uh, Christian Bale's character presents this diary that's supposed to have all the secrets of his tricks. And there's a, there's a key that will uh, decode the cipher, right? So the key term allows you to translate all the different letters in, in the diary. And of course this ends up being, all false. However, it's not all false, like you said, because Tesla is uh, the background real wizard in the film, and they're, he's spoken of in that way. So 
while uh, Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman's characters are illusionists, uh, Tesla plays the role of the real wizard insofar as he's sort of presented as this iconic figure who's going to He's on the cusp of you know the revolution of the, the industrial revolution, technological revolution that's coming at this turn of the century period. Um, so Tesla's role in this is is fascinating on multiple levels. For one, Tesla actually did engage in experiments in um, in Colorado, which is a curious location for where Angier goes to try to track down Tesla to, to learn some of the secrets. And while he's there, he figures out that, oh, actually, Tesla's working on all this crazy stuff like the wireless transmission of energy, alternating current, all of which is very real. Uh, and Tesla actually was doing, as far as we can grasp from what's known about Tesla, a lot of this is kind of, even with Tesla, right, you have this question of separating the the arcana and the lore from the, the fact. But uh, that does appear to be the case, as far as I can tell in my research, that he, you know, he was there. He did build a huge coil uh, in uh, Colorado, and so it's in a way. I also saw a deeper connection to Atlas Shrugged because Atlas Shrugged. There's mention of Colorado there in terms of John Galt's hidden Atlantis community, and the Atlantis community in Atlas Shrugged is actually roughly utilizing some sort of what they call a quantum propulsion engine. or It's roughly kind of like a Tesla-type technology. The Atlantis community is also hidden away as a kind of breakaway civilization behind a large hologram. So all kinds of suppressed secret tech going on in that novel, uh, which I, I don't think that The Prestige is directly referencing uh, Atlas Shrugged. I just think there's kind of a a, a little a brief sort of nod or hint in what I call you know twilight language in that regard but but uh, Tesla it, that's why I think he's the secret key to the film so just as in the film Christian Bale's character is misdirected with the cipher and the cipher is T E S L A in the same way as we watch the film we could think of the film or the narrative like the the diary and the the cipher for us as the viewer is Tesla, and so that's how I read the film. As again, as we said, mul- operating on multiple levels, and then the qu- the question of Tesla is really this the key to the deeper meaning of the film. That it's the true wizards of scientism and transhumanism, and and that's the direction of where we're going. Because again, the setting of the film, the time the time setting is very crucial at this cusp of the technological industrial revolution. So what does that tell us then about what this film is, is gesturing towards if Tesla is the key and Tesla is this figure who did seem to perform these feats of almost wizardry, making magic actually happen in real life, uh, or at least uh, as I think Asimov famously said, any sufficiently advanced technology will look like magic. Well, um, I think Tesla was the, the case in point of that. And uh, and what does it say then that at least as the uh, the, the movie does demonstrate of course he was run out of business as it were by his uh, rival edison but of course the part of that that they leave out is the fact that ultimately his patents were bought by jp morgan uh, who was backing edison at the time so um what does that really what is the film trying to tell us then about uh, this this uh, dichotomy and, the, and the, the struggle that's taking place even within the forces of, of scientism 
It's uh, yeah, it's Arthur C. Clarke's third law that there is, you uh, go. Any, uh, any sufficiently uh, advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, and that's the reason that connects to the film is that there's a line that David Bowie gives as Tesla where he see David Bowie is playing Tesla. If you haven't seen the film, he says all of these things come at a, at a cost. And that, that I think is in terms of the technological warning aspect of the film, uh, that's the, the key. That's the message. The message is that when Hugh Jackman goes to see Tesla and they're sitting there having a breakfast and, Tesla says, I see that you're a man with an obsession, and obsessions are a dangerous thing. They come at a price. And so he says something to the effect of man exceeding his grasp. And, of course, man can, in a sense, obtain a lot of the things that seem impossible. Right? And so Tesla, we discover in the film narrative, at least, is already working on cloning. And this is just sort of blows the mind of uh, Angier, of uh, uh, Hugh Jackman's character, and we're supposed to kind of be blown away at that too, like what well, cloning, right? But but here we are. We live in an era where we actually see you know news stories about cloning, and how exactly advanced that is. I don't know from firsthand ex- firsthand experience, but I do tend to think that you know it's probably actually really going on. In fact, I recently did an analysis of uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, and he wrote that in 1932, and it includes cloning. So <laughs> already in 1932, even Huxley could foresee this, you know, and, and how old cloning technology actually is, I, I don't know. But at least from we, what we do know, you know, there, there were Life magazine or Time magazine articles in the 60s and 70s talking about it. You know, Woody Allen had the, the film Sleeper, which includes the notions of cloning. So cloning, though, can also kind of be read in that transhumanist sense where, you know, we're going to extend ourselves, who we are as a self, on into the future, supposedly through you know, either through technological means or through some form of uh, uh, biological mimicry and cloning. Uh, so I don't, I didn't, I don't really want to get too far into transhumanism per se because I don't think that's really what the film is about necessarily. What I think it's about is man's quest to exceed limitations, and that's the whole point. Because there's an image that cons- that consistently appears throughout the film, and that's the box. So whether it's the box of uh, the magic trick in which we find that the assistant is killed where she drowns or whether it's the box of Tesla that creates the clones or whether it's ultimately the box of the grave. There's a poignant scene where Christian Bale is talking to Hugh Jackman and he says, as they're observing the Chinese magician, uh, magician he says that man is a real magician because he lives his art. And that's the only way to escape this prison. And he knocks on, the wall next to him, which he's speaking about reality or material reality. So I see the, that the box imagery consistently presented there. And if, if you know the history of literature uh, or comparative, comparative lit, uh, boxes are quite often you know, symbols of coffins. And so I think in a way, especially the dialogue in the very last scene, there's a play playing with the notion of the box as this life itself. We're actually kind of boxed in, in this material realm. So I, I, I see Nolan playing around with that and that has precedent in other Nolan films as well, such as inception where he speaks of this world, kind of like a dream world, like we're stuck in it and so forth. So without going too far into all that, that really the essence of the film is that is, is that man's reaching beyond the limitations, which a box is a limiting thing. Uh, it comes at a price. Right. 
And of course, the, the promise is some sort of eternal life, whether that's merely fame or whether it's actually cloning yourself into the future or whatever yeah, right. it may be. That's sort of the, the idea. But of course, uh, as it's portrayed in this film, it's a kind of an obsession that leads one towards one's own destruction. And there's a lot of different ways that we can take that. I mean, there's an, obviously a lot of different uh, issues that are raised here, but I think I'm particularly fascinated by the relationship between stagecraft and statecraft and how yes. there's so much overlap between when we look at something like these magicians who have to live their art, like Borden living as uh, two twins, living as one person. Oh, spoiler, in case you haven't actually seen the movie. But, uh, you know, two twins who, who d dedicate their entire lives to performing this, this long con basically um that's that's real dedication but of course so many uh different ethical implications are raised by this and and the idea of secrecy and the fact that secrecy ultimately starts to consume one's entire life and obviously the parallels between something quite obvious like the intelligence agencies obviously comes to mind where obviously you do have people living those types of lives but i think also on a lot of different levels the idea of Performing a trick on the public consciousness is something that states basically do all the time. It's sort of a foundation for their existence. Let's talk about some of those those uh, those ethical quandaries that are raised in the film and whether you think this actually gets people to actively consider such things or whether it tries to put a gloss on them so people won't look too deeply into it. No, I think you're absolutely on point. In fact, before we did this discussion, I reviewed the film again and in fact in my notes that was what I picked up on this time and it was the analogies and tie-ins to statecraft and the theatrics or the theater of war and espionage and so what came out there was the, the well the, the film is obviously all about misdirection and it, you know we have that that three-stage process of the pledge and the the, the turn and the prestige. And so we can relate that to the theater of war or the theater of media or statecraft insofar as that really it's all about presentation and the projection of power, right? So obviously states do have powers. Uh, there's no question there. But part of that is also creating the image of power, perhaps even beyond what you actually possess, right? Because that's part of the trick is get, to give the impression amongst the population that you have more than you do. And especially in regards to the enemy, whoever the enemy might be, you want, you want the enemy to think that you have uh, more at your means than you actually do. And that's what both of the magicians are engaged in. So we can actually see a kind of a parallel for the game of nations or, or state statecraft and espionage in the rivalry between these two, <coughs> excuse me, these two magicians, <coughs> excuse me, I'm going to have to take a water, a water break there. So, uh, <coughs> they both sabotage one another's, uh, routines. And that is parallel in many ways to the way states and even corporations and corporate espionage will try to sabotage one another, uh, whether it be through outright warfare or, you know, strategic locations or whether it be through espionage and obtaining secret information. This is really the role that Scarlett Johansson plays in the film where she kind of plays both sides. She goes from one magician as, uh, the, uh, stage girl to the other magician and, that's how Angier gets the diary uh, is through the machinations of his uh, raven, 
what we might call her his his swallow, his uh, sex operative, uh, with Scar- Scarlet playing that role roughly. So this then leads to Angier being overly paranoid, and uh, he falls for the misdirection of the diary. And that is, I think, in many ways, perfect parallels to real-world espionage stuff. So if you've read any biographies of spies or histories of uh, intelligence uh, uh, operations and and covert warfare, that's the kind of stuff you find all the time. It's a very good point, yes. I mean, sexual blackmail and those types of operatives are absolutely one of the foundations of uh, statecraft and also stagecraft. So there you go, at least in this movie. So let's examine that uh, three-part turn of the, the magic trick as described in the book and in the movie. Uh, Every great magic trick consists of three parts or acts. The first part is called the pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary, a deck of cards, a bird, or a man. He shows you this object. Perhaps he asks you to inspect it to see if it is indeed real, unaltered, normal, but of course it probably isn't. The second act is called the turn. The magician takes the ordinary something and makes it do something extraordinary. Now you're looking for the secret, but you won't find it, because of course you're not really looking. You don't really want to know. You want to be fooled. But you wouldn't clap yet, because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. That's why every magic trick has a third act, the hardest part, the part we call the prestige, which is an interesting description in a lot of ways. But I think the most interesting part of that, and one that is returned to as a theme that I think recurs at the end of the film, is that you're looking for the secret, but you won't find it, because, of course, you're not really looking. You don't really want to know you want to be fooled. And I think the obvious analogy would be to something like, say, a Bin Laden Al-Qaeda organization, which yes. we may, maybe was pledged to us in the 80s in the Afghan war as uh, the, the sort of golden boys in Afghanistan fighting the Ruskies. And then the turn occurs in the 90s when they start turning their terror organization against us. And then the prestige is 9-11, where this spectacular event takes place in front of people's eyes. And it's a rather morbid and uh, disgusting way of thinking about it. But I really do think that an operation like that does have that kind of psychological resonance that something like a magic trick does. It's so overwhelming that it shapes your view of reality itself. I think that that's a pretty obvious way of interpreting this and the way that this is used, but please do let me know if you differ from that interpretation. Now, now James, if you're not careful, I'm going to start doing my Michael Caine impersonation you know, and it's going to ruin the bloody podcast. <laughs> Hello, my name is Michael Caine. <laughs> my name is Michael Caine. No, I, I completely agree. I think that uh, 9-11 it comes to mind as an, uh, an absolutely spot-on example. I couldn't agree more. And I would actually argue that the event of 9-11 itself is kind of a misdirection, right? Because it was 9-11 that was at least intended to present to the mass mind of the world in the West especially, the U.S., that this is the justification for all of these later foreign policy ventures as well as the domestic spying and surveillance. And in order to do that, they needed some big event, some big catalyzing event, as we know from the PNAC documents, along the lines of Pearl Harbor. So I see it as – I mean I'm not saying it's not real. I'm just saying that it's misdirection in the sense that it was what would – lead to the next stage of the justifications for all these uh, ridiculous policies. And in that regard, you could actually, I think, see the whole mass, the whole mass media itself uh, as a misdirection, as, as the um, 
as Scarlett Johansson out there, you know, the, the Fox News babe or the info babe presenting th- this story of reality to you when that is the misdirection. And then meanwhile, over here, you have all of these covert proxy wars, the Brzezinski model of, of how to organize uh, strategy of tension in all these Middle Eastern countries, as well as uh, foreign policy uh, organized through NGOs and the uh, Soros's uh, Open Society Institute, NED. So that's what's really going on. And even those things are kind of covers as well. You know, those things operate as fronts for uh, CIA and, and Western intelligence operations. Uh, so, yeah, so behind the scenes, you have these oligarchs, you have Bilderberg, you have these groups that are actually engaged in. Uh, crisis management. I mean, the Bilderberg has the International Crisis Management Group that they formed with Brzezinski and Kissinger and General Wesley Clark. And so those are the people that are really doing things and making decisions about what's going to happen in these countries, whereas the population is then stuck on this one-dimensional level of bin Laden and, and uh, you know, Al-Qaeda, which are, you know, we all, surely we all know by now that those are CIA creations. Well, you would say that, but isn't the point really then that the blame, at least partially, if not fully, rests with the audience? Because we don't really want to know. We want to be fooled, and thus we are fooled by such obvious deceptions. Absolutely. And that is the the tragedy of this life, is that unfortunately, and as you, I think as you get older, you, you learn this, is that men, unfortunately, generally don't want the truth. I mean, a lot of people do, uh, certainly, and a lot of people can wake up, but a lot of people don't want to, and they're not going to. And that's because humans tend to prefer ease and simplicity. And when you present a challenge to that paradigm, which I've seen many times in my life, you you anger people. Uh, and so it, it, they're just reactionary, it's emotional, um, and that's why all the propaganda is reactionary and emotional sloganeering. It's very targeted at a very simplistic base level is because that's the way that unfortunately humans tend to operate. And so I would completely agree with you that there's the point that Michael Caine actually says in the film. He says, they want to be fooled. They're not here to learn the truth. They're here to be fooled. And that's, that's true about the audience. And that's what Nolan is actually saying. And this is how Hollywood is a good analogy for that. Is that we actually kind of live in a big Hollywood. I mean, mass media, the public perception it is a big Hollywood. I mean, we have Donald Trump, the actor on The Apprentice, running as the president. You know, Ronald Reagan was an actor. And so th- there's this, you know, complete blending of Hollywood and mass media and what's supposed to be this, this uh, fourth estate of journalism. That's not at all what it is. It's actors. It does start to uh, to get into realms that are just, I mean, it, it really is like we're living in this completely manipulated reality. But I think that the bright side of this, if there is one, is that like a magic trick, once you know how the trick is done, once you are aware of that and conscious of it and aware that you were being tricked, it does mm-hmm. take the power out of the trick. And you're, uh, you may still be analyzing the trick. Well, how did they perform the trick? But it's it's at a different level of analysis. And that potentially, I would say, provide some sort of analogy for the way out of the situation we find ourselves in, where 
rule of uh, of the the plebes has taken place for so many generations, centuries, millennia, who knows, by these types of deceptions, that all we have to do is become conscious of them and show the the bird up the sleeve, and uh, and to a large extent we've we've taken away the power from them, which I guess raises the question: Does a movie like this actually can it? be beneficial in the sense that the revelation of the method, well, once that method has been revealed, I mean, if people are starting to think about the ways that deception works in their lives and the ways that uh, they, they've been willing dupes, does that mean that we are likely to see more people starting to question the, the political reality we're living in, or is that a bit of a stretch for a movie like this? Good question. I think that artists make things and they have their intentions. And I think that Hollywood and the studio system and their connections to the intelligence agencies and the Pentagon have their intentions and those intentions can differ at times. You know, I know a lot of people who work in the artistic uh, realms of media and most of them are well-intentioned. You know, they, they want to see things change for the positive. And it really is, you know, generally speaking, the people at the tip top who are, you know, quite psychopathic and evil and who want to see things change for the worse. So uh, I guess it really depends on ultimately human nature. So I don't necessarily see a particular film uh, being a catalyst just because so many people unfortunately will forget films. I mean, I hate to say it. I mean, there, yeah, there's people who love Hollywood and they love film. I do. But I talk to people, even young people, who've never seen, you know, some of the most important films in the history of cinema. So I don't know if a, if a single film or something like that would ever be a catalyst. But I think it's a good sign to start seeing artists uh, making films that do question and challenge the system and independent studios popping up and independent film uh, being successful outside of the older established studio system. And I think, unfortunately, the, the establishment actually knows that. So what they'll do is just, you know, go and then co-opt and buy out the yeah. independent studio studios. But, yeah. but um, yeah, I mean, we can always hope for the best. And really, it's up to all the individuals out there and what they choose to do. Right. Well, it's, it, it is, it's, a, it's so much a question of what you bring into it and the perspective you're coming from is what you'll take out of it. And I think that, uh, that movies like this, I, I appreciate any movie that actually tries to engage my intellect and make me think and doesn't just feed right. spoon feed me all the answers. So I, I do appreciate a lot of the work of uh, Christopher Nolan that it, at any rate right. does have these multiple layers, uh, regardless of what the intentions might be. I think there's, there's value to come from that type of, uh, uh, that format. I, I know you've written quite a bit about Chris Nolan and various uh, movies of his, Interstellar and uh, Inception. What's your take on Nolan in general? I don't know. I, you know, I, I read interviews with him. I've watched a lot of interviews, tried to get into his mind. And I, I think he's definitely a deep thinker. I appreciate that. I I completely agree with your assessment that he does make movies that Engage the intellect, which is rare in modern cinema. Uh, he does seem to have a sense of philosophy and education and depth and and really wanting to put out artwork that has meaning. And, you know, that's that's saying a lot in modern cookie cutter Hollywood. But um, I, I guess it's, it's, it's just an unknown. I really don't know what he's after what is he this esotericist or is he actually saying that you know he thinks that 
the meta- metaphysics and the esoteric is illusory. Uh, that kind of seems to be what he hints at in the Prestige. But again, you know, this is from a novel, so I don't, I haven't read the novel, so I don't know yet. But you know, Inception asks a lot of interesting questions along those metaphysical lines in terms of, I don't know, Maya or Far Eastern thought and things like that. But um, you know, and then we have the question of the Sandy Hook references uh, to uh, Batman uh, Dark Knight Rises. Uh, so, I, you know, but I do think that film actually had a good message overall. So people point to, um, people point to things in that film that might be construed as some sort of intentional, um, I mean, I do think that it was an intentional reference to Sandy Hook. I don't know who did that, what production person was involved in that. Who knows? I mean, there's, you know, you, re- you read the credits, there's thousands of people involved in these films. So uh, I just don't know. <laughs> it's a great question. I have no idea. It always does kind of come back to that because obviously we're we're kind of backing into this from the outside. So we are limited by, by our access to, to sort of the inside baseball. But certainly it, it does strike me as something like a, perhaps a situation like Kubrick, who clearly knew uh, some things about, about how power really operates. But there's always the question, well, to what extent was he trying to let the public know about this? Or to what extent was he trying to just indoctrinate the public into it? and Things of that I think, nature. I, which... think, I think the artist, yeah, I, I think it's a great point. I should have mentioned Kubrick. I think Nolan has the potential to, if he keeps making good movies, to be in that category of David Lynch, Stanley Kubrick, Martin Scorsese, directors who make philosophical films. I certainly think he has that potential, um, but I think artists are in a weird position where they kind of feel impelled to put work out and then let people chew on it and let people digest it as they see fit. So I feel the same way with Kubrick. You know, I don't know whether he was uh, trapped and trying to get a message out, and or maybe he was a bit divided himself. Maybe he felt. You know, we're, we we all humans. Uh, all of us have times where we give into our darker side, and then we fight that and give into our our better angels. So you know, maybe they were uh, have been a bit divided at times. Uh, you know, it's just part of the human experience. But I think that for artists, they feel impelled to put these stories out and then just see what happens. Well, it is interesting. I think Chris Nolan is in his early 40s at this point, so presumably a lot of years left to continue making movies, so we'll definitely get to see some more. And uh, as I say, I'm interested in anyone who tries to engage my intellect. Uh, so we'll uh, at least we can reserve judgment for now and continue to try to parse out what these people are telling us. I think we should also, of course, mention the uh, the book, as you say. Uh, I also, I bought the book in preparation for this episode, but did not have time to read it before we talked today. But I understand that the book is... It's substantially different than the, the the final screenplay that ended up on the screen, and that was something that happened with Christopher Priest's blessing. In fact, I believe he particularly selected Chris Nolan um, as the director he wanted to uh, to direct this movie. So, uh, and I think he said in the making of that's available online that I'll link to in the show notes. I think he said something along the lines of uh, how impressed he was, how happy he was, the way that uh, the the Nolan brothers were able to turn the literary metaphors in the book into visual metaphors in an effective way. So I guess he was happy with the way it turned out, but the, uh, the there are substantial differences in the story, including one that I found interesting. I'll just mention this because it's just another kind of 
layer of the mystery, but there's a, an interpretation online that uh, the ultimately in the movie, the 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 teleportation device, the the cloning device didn't actually work. It was itself a hoax. And uh, and so <laughs> I don't know how we make uh, the, the final scene with the, all of the boxes <laughs> of all of the dead uh, Algiers and what, we'll, what we should do with that. But anyway, that's an interesting interpretation, but one that's completely insupportable from the book where it is 100% clear that that was an actual cloning device and in fact yeah. created inert copies of, of the people rather than actual living copies. But anyway... Fascinating stuff, lots to explore, but I, I think we'll have to sort of end the conversation at this point. But before we do, let's just tell people a little bit about your site and the type of work that you do there. Yeah, OJ's analysis is just a reflection, really, of my own interests over the last uh, 10 years or so. I guess when I was doing undergrad and grad work, I, I got really interested in the realms of geopolitics, philosophy, film criticism, literature, and espionage and ultimately how all of those tend to coalesce in really fascinating ways. So what Jay's analysis is, is a conglomeration of all that. So it's, I guess, about the last five years of articles I've written um, on all those subjects. So there's, I think there's about 700 posts there. And most of my traffic tends to be from the film analysis. So there's about 100 movie reviews that are all along these lines. I mean, it's not your typical Roger Ebert type movie <laughs> review. You know, I, I go pretty, pretty deep into some questions and speculations, and I tend to say when I'm speculating. You know, I, I welcome it within reason, obviously. Um, and so, if you like those topics, uh, yeah, check out uh, Jay's analysis. Yes. Well, any movie review that goes into Zbigniew Brzezinski and uh, Nikola Tesla and all of these types of things is uh, one worth reading. So I will, of course, include the link to the uh, the Prestige review on your website and to the website in general so people can explore your work. Jay, a very interesting conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, I hope we can do it again. All right, friends, there we go. There's another edition of Film Literature and the New World Order. And as always, let's just wrap things up with feedback from last month's edition of this series, where we took a look at James Joyce's A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man with our friend Thomas Sheridan. And, well, there was some feedback, some nice feedback from a few people. Uh, for example, there on the website, uh, we had user Orenda Review say, very interesting episode. Thank you. A sentiment that was... Uh, echoed in an email I received from Genevieve, who just said, another great FLNWO. Thanks. Where else can I hear conversations like this? I appreciate all that you do, but sometimes FLNWO really knocks me out. And I'm glad to hear that because I really think this is, well, I, I very much enjoy doing this series. And I think it's quite different than a lot of uh, what you find in the alternative media. But hey. Who am I to say? Um, we also had a comment in from the Flying Dutchman on last month's episode where he pointed out uh, he linked to some of the readings by Joyce of Joyce's work, which I said I was going to link in the show notes and then forgot to do. So thank you for pointing that out, Flying Dutchman. And then I included those links that I said I was going to. Uh, we also had an interesting email in from Vanya who said, I would like to share something with you that keeps coming to mind, especially because I am doing my own lyrics for my songs and I see it more like a poetry work than especially the music aspect of it. I see it more like a way to help the poem to be received. Sometimes I tend to think sarcasm is a very good way to approach certain subjects, especially related to icons, without being immediately dismissed or put into a very deep and hopeless box by the listener. 
this sarcasm tends to do uh, what I refer as stress in the middle. This is a thing I like to do naturally. The irony is that usually sarcasm can be misunderstood. And after thinking about the subject in various, sometimes creativity killer ways, I decided I don't want to be too much worried about the kind of predictive programming thing I can be supporting because I will end up with a limp censoring myself. The other thing is I don't want to treat people as dumb because every time I do that and people do that to me, I I or them end up behaving as dumb in a particular moment. So since since art has a very unpredictable scope and effect, I decided I want to treat people as the self-checking human beings I think all of us can be and expect the best. Maybe this sarcasm metaphor is not totally related to what you were discussing in the end of the podcast, but I think there is a parallel in there. Nevertheless, I tend to think of lots of things, especially Brave New World uh, looks to me as predictive programming. Some interesting thoughts there. And yes, the question of sarcasm and irony and how that can be employed or misunderstood and whether it should be avoided. But then there's the question of, well, do artists want to censor themselves for the ways that things can be interpreted? It's a multifaceted thing, and I think perhaps approaching it from the perspective of the artist who is attempting to put something on the page or on the screen is a good way of coming about this question of predictive programming and what have you. Because, again, it's not necessarily that every artist is being controlled by the New World Order and, you know, the powers that shouldn't be. It's just that this is these are narratives that are part of a social cultural context that's that's all around us. And the question is, how do you how do you question that or escape it without in some way playing into it? Another interesting question, uh, comment from BCR Smith on last month's podcast. Totally agree with Thomas Sheridan's sentiments regarding art is magic. These works can have a profound effect on the consciousness of individuals and are a very powerful force for change and subversion. I think it will be art that saves us in the end. An intriguing idea and one that I'm not wholly opposed to, but uh, and, and one that I think is very much in line with some of the issues that were raised in this month's uh, episode, as we just heard with The Prestige. So if you have your own comments about The Prestige, the idea of art and magic and how these things interconnect, the relation to statecraft and spying and all of these things, any of the issues raised by The Prestige, please do log into CorbettReport.com and leave your comments for next month's uh well, so that we will go through next month. So as always, we'll leave you with your homework for next month. FLNWO number 31, coming out in October, will be on the subject of The Manchurian Candidate. So either you can read the 1959 novel by Richard Condon or the 1962 film adaptation directed by John Frankenheimer, or both if you have time. And let's meet up in one month's time. So until then, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Thanking you for joining me. Looking forward to talking to you again real soon.